to session one of Beholding Jesus in His Amazing Grace. This session is entitled, Jesus, Our Eternal Divine Servant. Now, my plan for this study is sort of to pick up where I left off with Let's Keep the Amazing in Grace. The focus of that study was the finished work of Jesus. And I, one of my favorite verses, maybe my favorite verse is 1 Corinthians 2, 2. Paul says, I determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ, the person, and Him crucified, the finished work. So the focus of this study is going to be the person of Jesus, the beauty and the glory of His person. And my hope is that as we meditate on these stories of Jesus, our hearts are going to burn. Just like the two on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, it says their hearts burned when Jesus expounded to them all of the scriptures concerning himself. So as we behold Jesus in his word, you know who we're beholding? God himself. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? When we behold Jesus, he becomes our study of God. He becomes our theology. You're a theologian because you're studying God by looking at Jesus. He is our, our knowledge of the glory of God. And as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness and who has shown in our hearts to give the light, the revelation of the knowledge of the glory of God in a particular place, the face of Jesus Christ. So when we behold Jesus, the more we behold Him, the more our hearts are going to burn with the knowledge of the glory of God. And the more we behold Him, His face, you know what it says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, as in a mirror. The mirror image of the, of the new creation that He has created us to be. The more we behold Him, the more our lives are going to be transformed from the inside out. And the more we behold Jesus, the more our soul is at rest. And that's why I say beholding Jesus is the most practical thing we can do. So I'm going to just start this study sort of arbitrarily with that, that list of accounts I gave at the end of Let's Keep the Amazing Grace in the session called Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And at the end, I don't know if y'all remember, I just did sort of popcorn little, little glimpses of stories of Jesus that had burned in my heart over the years. And this one... It's just it's John 13, and it's the washing of the disciples' feet at the Last Supper, and I love John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. These are the last words of Jesus to his disciples, and then in John uh, 17, his prayer in Gethsemane to the Father. And so the last words that people speak are very important words, right? I know I repeat the words that my parents spoke at the end, and I, I, they just reverberate. These are the words that the Holy Spirit wanted recorded for us that's going to show us what Jesus has done for us and what he continues to do for us even to this day. So let's just get started in John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come that he should depart from this world to the Father. Now, this the backdrop is the feast of the Passover. And this is his last meal with his disciples. And you know what happens the next day. He's offered up as our roasted lamb on the cross. And having loved his own who were in the world. I love this. This is one of my favorite verses. He loved them to the end. Not to the end of his life, but to the end of their unfaithfulness and to the end of their pride and their independence. Because within the next 24 hours, they're all going to fail him. Peter is going to swear and curse that he never knew Jesus. And Jesus said, 
this very night you will all fall away. Of course, Peter says, even if everybody else does, I won't. And he says in John 16, that same night, he says, you will, you will be scattered each to his own and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone because my Father is with me. Knowing all of this, he still loved them to the end. He knows everything about us. And he still loves us, not just till our next sin, but until the end. Verse 2, and supper being ended, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Now, I, I see from verse 1, he's going to depart to the Father. That's good news. That's light. He's going to go to the kingdom of light, to the presence of his Father. Verse 2, I see a contrast. Darkness. He's going to be betrayed. So for the joy set before him to enter into the kingdom of light, he's going to have to endure the shame. He's going to have to suffer the horrors of the cross. He's going to have to become sin that we might become righteous. He's going to have to drink that cup of forsakenness so that we can receive the gift of sonship. And then on the other side, he'll return to his father. So Jesus, verse 13, knowing three things, that the father had given all things into his hands, that he was he came from God, and he's going back to God. What did he do? It says he rose from supper, laid aside his garments. That's speaking of his outer garments that would have restricted his motion because what he's getting ready to do, he's going to need his, his hands. And it says he took a towel and girded himself. This is about the waist. This is the garb of a slave that he has just put on. He knew his divine origin. He knew where he came from. He knew where he was going. He knew the Father had, he knew his divine authority that God had put everything into his hands. And what did he choose to do? He choose, chose to stoop down and wash his disciples' feet. Because when you're secure in who you are, you have nothing to lose by serving others. But this is a symbolic act, okay? And I'll prove it to you. This isn't about taking people's socks and shoes off and washing their feet with water, okay? This is a symbolic act because he says later on, you don't know what, what I'm doing here. They knew what he was doing, washing their feet. But it is symbolic of the greatest service that we can do for one another. Verse 5, after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe the towel, wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. I want you to see this. He is sitting at the table. And what is this table? The Passover meal. The roasted lamb. That is who he is, right? He rises from the table. So here he is. He is crucified, buried. He rises from the table. And what does he do next? He continues to serve them. And this beautiful picture of this foot washing, which is a picture of post-resurrection Jesus. He has risen from the table. He has already been crucified. This is all a picture of something. This beautiful picture of this foot washing shows what he has been doing for 2,000 years at the Father's right hand. And he is still serving us. He serves us even to this day as our high priest before God. He is our eternal divine servant ever living to intercede for us. And that is not... Yeah, I believe he's praying for us, but this is referring to his act of intercession, his scars, his blood that still cry out acquittal, forgiveness, reconciliation. Hebrews 7.25, he always lives to make intercession for us. Romans 8, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. 
Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore, is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, and who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one, because our intercessor is there for us. And in 1 Timothy 2, 6, 2, 5, and 6, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all. So he rose from table, the table to be their servant because, as I said, he knew who he was. He knew where he came from. He knew why he was here. He knew where he was going, so he had nothing to lose by serving them. What were the disciples doing at this moment? Well, if we look in Luke's account in Luke 22, we're going to see what they were thinking at this time. So after supper, he institute, after the Passover, he's in, he institutes the Lord's Supper. And then he washes their feet. But in Luke 22, it says, And he took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them. And he said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. He is telling them right there, something they don't understand right now. But he is saying, I am going to be your forever bond servant. Forever and ever, I'm going to serve you by becoming your once for all ultimate sacrifice for your sin. So what is their response? Is it overwhelming gratefulness? Well, actually, no, because this is going straight over their heads. Verse 24, it says, Now there was a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. <laughs> wow. I wonder why they were thinking that. Probably because all this talk about the kingdom and all they know is the way the world works. And I think they probably saw that basin over there and that towel and they're thinking somebody's going to be washing feet here in just a minute. But listen to what Jesus says to them. He says, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those who exercise authority over them are called, quote, benefactors or servants of goodness is what that means. So what he's saying is that these leaders of the world rule oppressively over the people and claim that they're doing it for the good of the people when in actuality all they're concerned about is the way they appear. <laughs> and Jesus says, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. That means the least privileged, the one who is the lowest in rank. And he says, and he who governs as he who serves. And then he's speaking of the world here. He goes, for who is greater? He, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? He says, yet I am among you as one who serves. I want you to think about Jesus. God himself coming from heaven to earth to be our servant. If anybody could have chosen his life, it was Jesus. He could have chosen when. He could have chosen where he could have chosen who his family would be, how much money they would have. But he chose to be born to a poor family, to be born in a stable and laid in a dirty, smelly manger so that he could be one of us. Philippians 2, verse 6, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now that's the New King James. I like the way the New American says it. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself of no reputation, 
taking on the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and he gave him the name that is above every name that every knee should bow, whether in heaven or on earth or under the earth, and that every single tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So he gave himself as the roasted lamb on the cross, and he absorbed all of our sin. He absorbed all of the curse of the law, all of the disease, all of the poverty, and everything that came from the fall. The fire and judgment that we deserve fell on him, though sinless. He took our sin, our sinfulness, and why did he do it? Mark 10.45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Back to John 13, verse 6. So he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered him and said, What I'm doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. In other words, it's symbolic. And I thought about, why did he go to Peter first? Maybe because he was the one that was going to need this the most when he figured out what this was all about. Of course, we know that before the night ended, he was going to deny him three times. And I want you to hear, Peter's future was prophesied by Jesus in that upper room that night. And if you look in Luke's account, you can see. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you, that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. I love that. Jesus was already praying for Peter even before his crisis of faith. And I think Jesus knows a little bit about prayer. <laughs> in fact, that very night in John 14, 15, and 16, he talked about prayer. You want to know what he said in John 14, 14, he says, if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. John 15, 7, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. John 16, 23, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. I'm just reading what he said to his disciples that night. The last words of people are very powerful and the ones that we remember. So he prayed for Peter, and I believe he gets what he prays for. He does. Yes, he does. And you know what he prayed? He prayed that Peter's faith would not fail. We know what happened. His faith failed. But that wasn't the end of the story, was it? Because Jesus already predicted it right here. He said, and when you have returned to me... Strengthen your brethren. His destiny is solidified right there. So, it was Peter that he approached first, and he said, what I'm doing you don't understand. So this is a physical action with a symbolic spiritual meaning. But listen to what Peter said to him. He said, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Now I've looked this up. It's with me not in me. You know you can be in Him and not sharing in partnership with Him in this life. And that's a possibility, isn't it? So, 
There's other versions that say it like this. You won't be able to share life with me. You won't be able to take part in what I'm doing. The, the, new li the Living Bible, the Old Living Bible says, you can't be my partner. If you don't let me wash your feet, you'll have no part with me. With me, it, this is the life of faith that we live. We live otherworldly, right? I go back to Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. And the life I'm living in this earthen vessel of flesh, I have to live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Are you seeing a pattern here? I've already said, and I think Mark 10.45, He gave Himself a ransom for many. In First. Peter 2, he says, he gave himself a ransom for all. And we're going to see in just a minute in Ephesians 5. He gave himself for her. This service of Jesus to us, we must embrace, not only wash our feet, but believe. And that's what the washing of the feet is. And we'll see in just a minute. It's believing in this all-over bath that we've already had through the blood. That we are righteous in his sight. That we're holy and without spot. And we'll get to that. And, and if you believe that, believe it, receive it, you will be able to partner with Him. Because you're not from this world either. You're going to heaven too. What have you got to lose? Be a freak for Jesus and just live by faith, right? And don't always worry about the rules, right? You told me a story earlier. If the Spirit moves you, you can do that and just live in partnership with Jesus, even if it's maybe breaking some, some rules. Now, listen to what Peter says. Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. He's like, I want to be your partner, but I'm not cleaning them. I need to be washed. I don't believe he's talking about his physical hands and his physical head. I believe that Peter, of all people, would have known the Old Testament Scriptures that spoke of the priest who would have to wash all over in the waters of the laver when he was consecrated before he could go into the holy place. He's just conscious of his sin disqualifying him from partnership with Jesus. And Jesus says to him, listen to this, he who is bathed, that's a Greek word, luo, he who is bathed needs only wash his feet, but is completely clean, katharos. And that word means unstained with the guilt of anything. He says, you are clean. And then referring to Judas, he says, but not all of you, for he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. But if you have been bathed, you are completely clean. All you need to do is have your feet washed. Okay, so what is this all over bath that has already made us clean? This same word, luo, for bathed, is in Revelation 1.5. To him who loved us, and washed us, Luo, from our sins in his own blood. This word Luo is a, the Greek verb there is in the aorist verb tense, the one and done verb tense. It won't be repeated. Once you are washed, you are washed. You are a child of God. You are a heavenly citizen. So, this is the type of Bible study person I am. I, I'm like, okay, why, how can he say that they're already clean when Jesus hasn't even gone to the cross yet? It's not as big a deal as you think because I believe that he's speaking of the future. 
He lived, Jesus lived in the finished work. While he walked around on the earth, he was still the son of God who lives outside of time. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you know how Revelation 13 8 says, the lamb, the lamb slain since the foundation of the world. Well, we know the lamb was slain 2,000 years ago, but this plan was in place way before Jesus came in a body, way before you and I were born from the foundation of the world. And you know what? As I was reading that this week, I thought, you know what? Same goes for me. God planned my life. God has a good plan for me. Do you know that? Um... So I just, this is only scratching the surface of the bank of scriptures I have as I pray for my family, for myself, for my husband, for my children. Listen, Isaiah 49, 1. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, He has spoken my name. Ephesians 1.11 in the Passion. Before we were even born, He gave us our destiny that we would fulfill the plan of God who always accomplishes every purpose and plan in His heart. I probably, Mark can testify to this. I probably read this once a week. Isaiah 46. I have cared for you since you were born. Yes, I carried you before you were born. We're going to have our, our first grandchild soon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. He says, I will be your God throughout your lifetime until your hair is white with age. I made you. I will care for you. I will carry you along and I will save you. Verse 9. Remember the things I have done in the past for I alone am God. I am God and there is none like me. Only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Everything I plan will come to pass for I do whatever I wish. And then back in Isaiah 49 again. See, I have inscribed you in the palms of my hands. You know what I thought about? John 13, 3. He knew that God had given all things into His hands. Whose hands is that? The Good Shepherd's hands. In John 10, He says, I give them eternal life, and they shall neither perish. He says, and neither shall anyone snatch them out of my palm. Isn't that good news? Woo. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Doesn't that make you feel loved and safe? Doesn't it give you hope? For me, it gives me assurance that God's answering my prayers. Amen. Back to the foot washing. So he washed with water, but there was this all over bath that he referred to that is the blood. And even on the cross, it says when the, when the soldier speared his, his side, it said immediately blood and water. There's no mistakes in the Bible. Blood came first. Blood, then water. We have had the all over bath. We don't need to reapply the blood. The blood has washed us. You know what I mean? Every time you sin, go, oh, the blood of Jesus washed me clean. The blood of Jesus has washed you clean. The water is to remind you of that. He says, he who has been bathed needs only wash his feet. And that word for wash is not luo. It's a different Greek word, nipto, which is to wash just a, a part of the body. And in this case, what is that part? The feet. And what do the feet represent? Well, they represent walking around in this dirty world. We get the dust and the dirt and the grime on our feet walking around. What does the water represent? I bet everybody here already knows. Right? The washing of the water of the Word. So the Word. But what Word? The whole Bible? Is it just any place? Open your Bible and go up. That's the washing of the water of the Word for me today. Cursed shall you be. <laughs> you know, in the city. Cursed shall you be. No, that is not the word. No, it's a specific word. And it's right there in Ephesians 5. 
Husbands, love your wives. I won't get into that. But just as Christ also loved the church and He gave Himself for her, that He might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the Word, that He might present her to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. What is the Word that cleanses us? It's the Gospel in five words. He gave Himself for her right there. That's it. That's the simple version. There's a lot of longer versions you could do. But that's it. That's the Word that has cleansed us. That's the Word we need to hear every single day. Jesus gave Himself for you. And you need to instantly know what that means. You are in Him and nothing can ever separate you from His love. So, He washed the dust and grime off their feet. And I will just tell you, I don't know if y'all think about dust this way, but the place I always go to is John, I mean Genesis chapter 3. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, what did He do? He deceived the crowning achievement of God's creation, mankind, and He brought in sin and death into the human race. And God says, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. So dust, I, I see it as the devil's food. It's what gives him nourishment. It's what strengthens him. So we need to know what it is. What is it that you think might strengthen the devil and get him all excited and nourished? Well, it's his lies. It's his propaganda. It's the impure thoughts that he gives us. It's the condemnation and the accusation. It's all of that. We need to starve the devil of getting any traction with the food that gets on our feet as we walk around in this world. And how do we do that? A daily washing of the water of the Word of His grace. You are all fair, my love. There is no spot in you. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And my favorite for this washing of the water of the Word, Colossians 1, 22, 23. Yet now God has reconciled you to Himself through the death of Christ in His physical body. And as a result, He has brought you into His own presence. And you are holy and blameless as you stand before Him right now without a single fault. But you must continue to believe this truth Amen. and stand firmly in it. Do not drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. And that's what we can do for each other. We can remind each other. That's why I'm a fanatic. I always say the same verses. Y'all heard me say these same ones over and over and over. What happens after you wash feet? You've got to dry them off, right? Nobody wants to walk around with wet feet because then you get all muddy and it's gross. So I go back to John 13, 5. It says that he wiped them with the towel with which he was girded. And that word towel is lintion, which means a linen cloth. Linen is a symbol of righteousness all through the Bible. It's representing, like the priest would wear the linen robes. It's representing the robe of righteousness that Jesus has given us. So when that washing of the water of the Word, and then our feet get dried off, and do you know how feet feel when they're all clean and dry? They feel fresh, don't they? And you know what kind of feet they are? Beautiful feet. Mm -hmm. Feet that are ready to share the gospel of peace with the world. So when he had washed, verse 12, so when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said, do you know what I've done to you? 
Again, symbolic. You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than him who sent him. All right, we're sent, right? We're sent to share the gospel. We're sent to make disciples. And he showed us how it's done. Jesus always personally demonstrated that the last shall be first, that the humble shall be exalted, that the greatest among us would be the servants of all. And what is this? The exact opposite of the world's ways. And he had no shame in going after what I say, the least, the lost, the last, and the losers. Look at all the stories. I hope we get to all of them. The least, the last, the lost, and the losers, he went after. He has no shame. He's not, look, he's going for everybody. But while some people want to go after the big shots, you know, to get another feather in their cap, he's going after the ones who will never be able to do much for him, right? But I think he specializes in taking the least likely among us and making them those vessels of greatest honor to display his glory. I think that's how it works. Read 1 Corinthians 1. Not many noble among us. Grace is the great leveler. All of us are seated in heavenly places in Christ, right? No matter who we are, no matter what we've done, and one of my favorite parables is the one about the laborers, and the one, the one that came at the end of the day got the same pay, and it made the ones that had worked so hard mad. Does grace offend you? <laughs> or have you been humiliated enough in life um, that you're just, you just want it for yourself and you're, you want it for everybody else too? But listen to what he says at the end. He says, Is it not lawful for me to do what I, what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I'm generous? So the last shall be first and the first shall be last. He just jerks our chain, doesn't he? <laughs> His disciples who would one day lead the church, he explained the difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world. He is speaking of the religious leaders of their day, the big shots of their day when he said this in Matthew 23, speaking of the Pharisees. He says, they love to sit at the head table at the banquets and in the seats of honor in the synagogues. They love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi. Don't let anyone call you rabbi, for you only have one teacher. Jesus, right? All of you are equal as brothers and sisters. Don't let anyone, anyone here on earth address you as father, for only God in heaven is your spiritual father. And don't let anyone call you teacher, for you only have one teacher, the Messiah. And we have all our little sort of names that we might place before, you know, to honor those you know, who are up at the pulpit or out front. He says, well, the greatest among you must be a servant, but those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And y'all have heard me tell the story, I don't accept titles. And believe me, I've had to wrangle over this. They're like, oh, we don't have permission not to call. you got to have a title. And I'm like, no, I don't. Just call me Tricia. 
That's my name. I feel like to do otherwise would dishonor Jesus. That's my personal opinion. If he set himself up as a divine servant to me, I'm simply a servant to you. And I'm doing it. This is how I do it. I, I cook a meal and I serve it for y'all. I'm serving y'all some, some food right now. That's pretty much what I know to do. So appreciate y'all being here. <laughs> and I, I read 1 Corinthians 12 again about the spiritual gifts this week and, and how Paul talked about the parts of the body that you can't see are the most necessary. Like your heart and your liver, right? You can't live without them. And other parts that we cover up, you know? And he says that we ought to give greater honor to the, to the parts that lack it. Why? Because the ones out front already have the honor. They don't need more honor. But that's the way we think. We're so worldly in our thinking, right? His ways are not our ways. We always want to be the big shot. The flesh always wants to be a big shot. But he wants us to be like little children, right? Matthew 18, and this is in the Amplified. Whoever will humble himself, and what that word means is to see yourself as unimportant in your own eyes. Whoever will humble himself, therefore, and become like this little child, trusting, lowly, loving, forgiving, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Our importance comes from our Creator. He already said we're important. It doesn't matter if I appear important to you. And that is the only way you are truly going to be able to serve others. You've got to, get, you've got to quit thinking you've got to be important. It's hard. I understand. <laughs> Uh, 1 Peter 5, Peter says, Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Why does He want us to be humble? Because our God is a giver. And humility is the posture for receiving His grace. He wants to give us more grace, James says, and he gives more grace. Therefore, he said he also quoted, it's Proverbs 3.34, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. I want all the grace I can get. Therefore, I just have, I just have to say, Lord, I need you. In Acts 20, I read this whole chapter again this week, but in, in the context is P, uh, Paul talking to the leaders of the Ephesians church, and he's telling them about all his persecutions, the trials that await him, and all of that. And he says, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And then he goes on to talk about how hard he's worked, how he's poured his life out, how he never coveted silver or gold, how he even paid the way for those who went with him. Truly a humble man, right? And then he goes on to say in verse 35, you should remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. But I want us to start thinking, not when we hear that, I, we need to stop thinking, I need to give more. I need to give more. You know what you need to do? You need to receive more. You want to know why? Because Jesus embodied self-sacrifice. You will never be more blessed than Jesus. You will never be able to outgive Jesus. We're the blessed. He's the blesser. We'll never take his place. He says, freely you receive, freely give. So give me some more. Give me some more. He wants to give more grace. The more grace you receive, the more grace you can give. And it is. For us, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And you'll, you'll learn the beauty of this. And the magic. I love giving. My, my kids have a joke. They're like, anyway, this is going to sound weird to y'all, but they're like, <laughs> I come and I say, 
do you need some money? <laughs> What's wrong? Do you need some money? <laughs> and I try to find a $100 bill to give them. I love to give. Do y'all love to give? It's so fun. And I just know that if I just, I go according to my heart, I can't go wrong. You can't outgive. There's more where that came from, right? Give generously. John 13, 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Blessed. Mark and Neil went to Makarios the other day. That's the Greek word. Blessed is Makarios. It's one of our favorite restaurants on the south side. You know what it means? Happy. You want to be happy? So many people are looking for happiness. Wash some feet. Share the good news. Remind each other of the finished work of Jesus. And when we fail, that's the, that's the time we need to hear it, right? You are forgiven. As I was reading that earlier today, I was like, Somebody needs to hear this. You're forgiven. You're already forgiven. I believe that's our number one ministry. And the best way we can serve one another is to remind each other what Jesus has done for us. His great service to us. So I'm going to end with another one of my favorites. Isaiah 53 in the Amplified. Surely Jesus has borne our griefs, sicknesses, weaknesses, and distresses. And he has carried our sorrows and pains of punishment. Yet we ignorantly consider Jesus stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God with leprosy. But Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. Jesus was bruised for our guilt and iniquities. The chastisement needful to obtain peace and well-being for us was upon him. And with the stripes that wounded Jesus, we are healed and made whole. And then verse 12, Jesus poured out his life unto death. He let himself be regarded as a criminal, numbered among the transgressors. And yet Jesus bore and took away the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors, the rebellious. And who was that? Me. And you. <laughs> Amen.